1: Everything worked out in the end, despite the uh, the bumps along the way.
0: Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I am your host, Sarah Nicholas. I hope you're enjoying the podcast and the stories authors are sharing with you. If you are, please consider leaving a review on your podcast app or sharing the episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show with a couple of bucks a month, go to patreon.com pubtalklive. Today, you are going to hear from historical fantasy author Cass Morris. Cass works as a writer and educator in Central Virginia. She holds a Master of Letters from Mary Baldwin University and a BA in English with a minor in History from the College of William and Mary. She reads voraciously, wears corsets voluntarily, and will beat you at Mario Kart. <laughs> Her debut series, The oven Cycle, is Roman Roman-flavored historical fantasy released by Daw Books. So please welcome Cass. Hello.
1: Hi. Thank
0: you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for coming on. So we're going to start by going kind of all the way back to the beginning. So when did you first start getting interested in writing, and then from there, how long did it take before you started getting more serious about publication?
1: I think this depends on how you define serious. I have been a storyteller since I was a very, very, very small thing. Um, among my earliest sets of memories is crafting a sequel to The Last Unicorn and making my cousins act it out with me. It's great. But I knew I wanted to start writing books when I was 11. I- saw the movie Star Wars A New Hope for the first time then in 1997 when it was re-released in theaters. And I sat there at the end absolutely gobsmacked by the size of the universe that had been presented to me. Because that's one of Star Wars' best things, I think, is its ability to show you in a single scene so many different stories happening all at the margins and in, in the corners and in the shadows and in the different costumes and everything. I was just blown away. And I thought, I want to do that. I want to make big worlds like that, that have so much room in them and so many different stories in them. So that's when, at least in my 11-year-old head, I seriously knew I wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the the dedication came and went over the next decade and a half or so. As I did other things, I, I, I always was writing. I was certainly writing plenty of fan fiction. I was writing Some original things. I went to grad school for Shakespeare studies, and it was after that that I realized in in November 2011 that I kept thinking of myself as someone who wanted to be a novelist. Mm. But if you want to be a novelist, eventually you have to actually write a novel. I had gotten very much away from creative writing over the previous few years because I was doing so much academic writing, you know, and they're just, Mm -hmm. they're different beasts. It's a different skill set, a different part of my head. And it was like, okay, if I still want to be a novelist, I need to buckle down and do something. And that really was when I, I got very serious about it and started deliberately making the time and writing with an eye towards publication. So that was 2011. How old was I then? 26? Yeah, that sounds right.
0: <laughs> I'm trying to remember when exactly we met and if it was around that time. I think it was around
1: that time. It was It was the next year. It was the next summer, um, 2012 at Ascendio in Florida.
0: Yes. <laughs> Once you realized that you wanted to be a published author as opposed to kind of doing it as a hobby, How did you start learning more about the publishing industry, like how it works, how to go about it, how to query, that kind of thing?
1: I did a lot of Googling, a lot of trying to find websites that would guide me. But honestly, I think I learned the most about the industry as a whole from Twitter, from writing Twitter and from following lots of authors, from following lots of agents and editors and seeing that side of of the canvas, I guess, that that. You sort of get it. It's not fully a behind the scenes look because people are still putting out a certain version of themselves on Twitter, certainly. Yeah, still filtering. Definitely. But it gave more of a view into the moving parts than other things I was finding. So that was really where a lot of it came from was the occasionally dubious um, guidance of social media.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of us who really got started in the industry around like 2009 to 2012 Twitter was such a great resource back then. And it still is, but it wasn't how do I say this? It wasn't as big, right? So it was Yeah. It was easier to find people and the agents only had like 800 followers, so they were more accessible. <laughs> then what happened? Can you break down kind of your journey for us? I know you you had a little bit of like stops and starts along the way, so can you tell <laughs> us what happened?
1: Oh, I sure did. Absolutely. So that convention that we we met at was my first sort of step into trying to become part of the publishing world, because they had an event there where you could pitch your book to agents, and this was the book I'd started the previous year. I had scrambled to get it finished and to write a query letter so that I could pitch at at this convention to two to two different agents, and I sort of knew like it it was I knew it was practice because they were both agents who focused much more in YA, and I'd written an adult novel, but I figured you know let's just go for it for the experience of Doing this thing. And I'm so glad I did because it showed me both that the book wasn't ready yet. It needed a couple more months of editing, Mm -hmm. and that was fine. That was good to know. Like, they asked me good questions about the story, and I was like, hmm, you're right. I should fix that or figure that out in a different way. But it also taught me what agents were looking for in a query, what the big things they wanted to see in a query letter were, what they wanted to know right off the bat. So that was a great experience, and it helped me a lot. So I spent the next six months or so editing some more polishing the book up and then started querying and that was early 2013 and I did the thing where I just made a big old spreadsheet of all the agents that I thought could possibly be interested in this story researching the ones who you know worked for writers who had similar types of books you know historical fantasy and epic fantasy combing through twitter again manuscript (laughs) wishlist day um hashtag that hashtag is actually how I found Connor who became my agent I queried him in August. Yes, it was August of 2013. He immediately asked for a full manuscript, which was shocking to me by that point, because I'd been querying for a very long time, (laughs) and had mostly just heard deafening silence. You know, so many of them, you don't even get a form letter rejection. It's just, well, I haven't heard from them in three months. I guess that's a rejection. But Connor immediately asked for a full manuscript, because I would later find out he also has a background as a classicist, classical studies, Greek and Rome. And so my concept intrigued him we signed in october of that year so i had about a nerve-wracking 8 weeks really between him asking for the full and hearing back from him and the the week that he made the offer was the most nerve-wracking cuz i was following him on twitter mm. and he said something on publicly about like i'm reading this amazing manuscript this is so exciting i can't wait to think about this some more and i was like is it me is it or is it someone else I don't know what to think. It was wonderful and horrifying. When I took the call from him, I was actually at a theme park. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I was at Busch Gardens Williamsburg in Virginia and had to, like, find a tucked away corner to have this conversation. <laughs> it was in the New France area, for anyone who's been to Bush Gardens Williamsburg, near the log flume. So there's this, like, French-Canadian music in the background. And it's like, this is one of the more surreal moments of my life. that's that's weird (laughs) but fitting in in a way for it to be just a very odd moment so we then spent a little while continuing to shape the manuscript uh connor is a very editorial agent he likes to help shape projects and get them ready to go out on sub we went on sub early 2014 did a round of submissions with sort of you know the the top publishers the big the big heavy hitters and we didn't get any bites we did a little more refining, a little more revision and did a second round. This is where I got my heart broken a little bit. There was an editor who was really interested in it. And the acquisitions board turned this editor down. And so I started to get my hopes up. And then it was like, oh, nope, nope, not going to happen. And we were about to shelve the project. I, in fact, mentally already had, I was like, all right, this might not happen. I got to be okay with that. I'm going to work on something else. And before my idea was that this was in, it was 2015 by this point, I was going to get Connor something else by the end of the year to work on and and to shop. So I was working on a different project and Connor had learned his lesson about getting my hopes up. And so he didn't tell me when he had interest again. Oh. (laughs) And so in September, this was two days before my birthday. It was the best birthday present ever. He calls me and I thought we were, it was a scheduled call. I thought we were just going to be Checking in, touching base, talk about the new thing I was working on. But he opened with, so I sold your book to DAW. Actually, it's a three book deal. I was like, I'm going to need you to repeat that. (laughs) Because it was just, I had already mentally put it away. Um, So I was very surprised and very happy. So we signed the contracts. Yeah, the contract process is long. It was somewhere between then and the end of the year. I don't remember exactly when everything was settled with, my acquiring editor, and we did more editing, more revisions, uh, the sheer number of words in the first book that from the original draft to what came out on the page must be <laughs> astonishing. I, I've never actually totaled it all up, but it must be phenomenal with all the rounds of revisions we did. And then about a year into this process, my editor left DAW for another publishing house. Oh, no. Which is a thing that happens, you know. Yes. Editors are people. They have lives. They make the choices that are going to be best for them and their careers. And I totally respect that. It, it is a thing that happens. I think it's a kind of thing that doesn't get talked about a lot. And so it can take you by surprise. I sort of wasn't really prepared for it because I hadn't heard people talk about it happening, but it does. Mm-hmm. It's one of those sort of just behind the veil publishing world things. So I got then handed it over to Betsy Wolheim, who is one of the head honchos at DAW. Amazing. Has won, you know, Hugos and things like that for editing. Also, a super busy person, and so that then hmm. delayed the whole process a little bit because she had to get up to speed on the project, and then she had her own you know, view about further revisions. It lengthened everything. You know, people will say that from acquisition to being on the shelf can be anywhere from like six months to two years. I was beyond the two year point because of all this, so I I was on the long, long ride, and the the pub date got changed a couple of times, which was nerve wracking for me eventually it did come out in 2018. And and it did all right. It's it, it's done good. So everything worked out in the end, despite the, uh, the bumps along the way. And I think in some ways, it was probably good for me that I had a sort of bumpy first experience, because from now on in my career, whatever happens, I'll be like, I can roll with this. <laughs> I like that you mentioned
0: there are two um, kind of hurdles that happen quite a bit in the industry that we don't often hear about, and we don't talk about publicly. And that's one, your book going to the acquisitions board and the board turning it down, which it, it does happen a lot. And it can be because once you have the editor interest and the editor is interested in buying it, you think that's it. Like I've made it right. They've, they're, they want to buy it, but they have their own kind of internal roadblocks that they have to get over, too. And then. To have an editor leave the house, especially when you've been through a longer submission journey where you've gotten a lot of no's, it's even more nerve wracking because you're like, well, what if this new editor hates the book? (laughs) And, you know, because so many people before didn't like it. Yeah. So what are the chances that this new editor is going to love it as much as the first one? And that happened to me, too. And I was very lucky that my new editor really liked the book and really, really got it. Yeah, I can definitely slow everything down. And it's just like one of those extra things that you can worry about if you're a warrior.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, but if your anxiety like mine flaps around looking for loose things to attach to, congratulations. Here's a few extra ones. (laughs) Yes. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I don't recommend worrying about these things because we already have so much and none of this is is in your control either. So the show is called Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. So we're going for that first cue right now. Uh, Can you read a successful query letter for us?
1: I sure can. This is the one that I sent Connor back in 2013. Dear Mr. Goldsmith, An assassination attempt forces Latona, an elemental mage, to unleash her latent powers, demonstrating potential that far outstrips her training. When the dictator who threatened her family dies, she determines to take this opportunity to change the course of her life, but she quickly discovers that ambition has a high price. The city-state of Avon is a place where elemental magic shapes the rule of the land as strongly as law and war. In the power vacuum left by the dictator's death, the conservative Old Guard clashes with the populist liberal faction over the best way to shape the nation's future. Latona and her sister Aula, a widow whose frivolous nature conceals a scheming mind, use charisma and cunning to manipulate advances for the populists. Their paths intersect with that of Sempronius Terran, a rising politician who dreams of a vast empire growing from his beloved city. He believes that the gods have equipped him with the necessary skills and thrown down this challenge, but in order to achieve his goals, he will have to break some of his civilization's most sacred laws. Custom dictates that no mage may attain the highest political offices, but Sempronius, who has kept his abilities a lifelong secret, intends to do just that. Aula sees in Sempronius a man with an extraordinary vision for their nation, and the greatness to make it a reality, and she pushes her sister to cultivate an alliance with him. As their friendship blossoms, Sempronius encourages Latona to learn to wield the extraordinary magical power that is her birthright. But Latona's husband objects to the idea and the alliance and Sempronius's secret could ruin them both and destroy their faction's chance to reform the city. Avin is a completed 106,000-word historical fantasy with series potential, inspired by late Republic Rome. I write professionally for the Education Department of the American Shakespeare Center, where I have worked since graduating in 2010 with an M.Lit from Mary Baldwin College. My undergraduate degree is a B.A. in English and History from the College of William & Mary. I blog both professionally and personally, and i am active on major social media platforms. Thank you for your consideration. Sincerely, Cass Morris. Thank you. Did you say it was one hundred and sixty thousand words? One hundred and six. When I queried. Oh, okay. One oh six. It ended up being one forty eight. Was the the final print? Yes. It grew a lot in edits, which was something that surprised me because I had sort of always heard that oh, editors are going to make you cut so many things out. Mm -hmm. And both of my editors did exactly the opposite. They asked for more. They wanted things fleshed out more. And I was like, all right, you're gonna be sorry you asked for this, but <laughs> more I can do. Yeah, I do think historical fantasy
0: readers are more forgiving of longer books than some other genres, though. So so how has your experience been since your book came out? Were there kind of any surprises
1: along the way? Anything, you know, you want to tell uh, listeners about? I was not surprised by how anxiety-ridden it made me, but... <laughs> That is something I've had to learn how to deal with. When From Unseen Fire debuted, I went round the bend. I was checking Google and Goodreads and Amazon and rankings constantly. I wish I had told someone to take my phone away from me. <laughs> so it's like, take it, give it back to me in two weeks, maybe. If that had been a viable option, I should have done that. I was so keyed up. It was so bad because there's nothing in my control at that point. You know, once you've written the book, you've done the part you can do yeah really no amount of of me shouting on social media drives metrics that doesn't drive mm-hmm. sales really the author's power to do things like that is very small but I was making myself very wound up about it and I had to learn how not to do that and mm-hmm. the, my second book came out this last December and I am a much happier person <laughs> having <laughs> weaned myself off of all of that I don't look at Goodreads. At all anymore I have someone who does that for me and passes along the lovely things and allows me not to worry about the non-lovely things I worry about different things instead that whole process dominated a lot of my response to the book being out in the world (laughs) Mm, I can see that yeah
0: I think a lot of first-time authors kind of fall into that though because you you don't get very much information when you're traditionally published about how the book is selling and all that kind of thing Mm -hmm. And so we're just trying to get as much information as we can, but a lot of that information is uh, sometimes not pleasant, you know, (laughs) or you see the bad reviews and even you could read, you know, 20 great reviews and read one bad review and that's the one that's going to stick with you, you know. So it is time for the quick round portion. I call it author DNA. So it's just kind of all the little things that we talk about that uh, define an author, though not really. there's These are mostly like surface level things, but they're fun. Are you a panther or a plotter?
1: I think of myself as a planter rather than either of those two.
0: Do you tend to overwrite or underwrite?
1: Way over. Way, way over.
0: <laughs> <laughs> are you more of a morning writer
1: or a nighttime writer? Absolutely nighttime I do not function in mornings I don't enjoy it certainly so
0: agreed <laughs> So whenever you first start writing a story what usually comes first is it character or plot or concept or something else
1: It's usually a sense of the aesthetic of what the place is going to sort of look like what historical vibe it's going to have and then character comes next usually that sort of a, they pop up in whatever painting my my head is starting to come up with
0: Interesting. Especially because you have a world-building podcast, which we're going to talk about. <laughs> do you prefer coffee or tea? Tea. I find coffee too bitter. Whenever you write, do you prefer silence or do you prefer some kind of sound? Sound.
1: I require background noise. I, I can't be left alone with only my own thoughts. I <laughs> I do a lot of movie soundtracks in the background. Mm, okay.
0: And when it comes to first drafts, are you more of a get it down or get it right kind of
1: person? I think I'm more on the side of get it right. I am not someone who can go through a full draft if I know there are major things wrong and I'm going to have to restructure them later. That feels like wasted energy to me. I'd rather pause, unsnarl, and then move on. And what tools or software do you use to draft? Scrivener. And I'm very excited (laughs) that Scrivener 3 finally dropped for Windows because... I saw. I haven't used it yet, but... Oh my gosh, it's so pretty. (laughs) so
0: pretty. I haven't updated it yet, so, um, but hopefully this week.
1: Do you prefer drafting or revising more? I think I like revising more. It's more satisfying to fit the puzzle pieces together, even if that means you know, you're hacking off the bits that don't work. I find that really gratifying. And do you write in sequential order or do you hop around? Hop around. I am constitutionally incapable of writing oh, in wow. sequential order. Can't do it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't know how people have around so.
1: <laughs> I have to do what I tend to do is I I write sort of the tent pole scenes first or at least parts of mm. them the big major moments the the act turns the the reversals and then sort of play connect the dots between them Okay, so it's time for the second cue in the
0: podcast name, Qualms. <laughs> uh, you talked a little bit about some of them, but what were some of the worries that you had on your journey and were they realized or did you get over them or did they come to a
1: fruition? Like what happened with all your worries? I worry about people liking the book. I I want them to. I want them to see what I was doing and, and trust me to take them on a path through this forest that that I've created. And... Some people did and some people didn't. And the challenge was learning to be okay with that, that there is no book on this planet that is ideal for everyone. Just not ever going to happen. And and releasing that was difficult for me, being someone who likes to have control over things and who very badly wants to be liked. But knowing that you're never going to please everyone can be freeing in its own way and can be the release in and of itself, once you can wrap your head around that. What really does help is focusing on the good parts and focusing on the people who said it was their favorite book of the year. Uh, Even if it was only a couple of people, they were strangers, they didn't know me and they loved it. So I have to live for those people. It's like, it will find its readers and I just can't worry about the ones who didn't like it as much. And, And like I said, with the second book, I have overcome not all of that anxiety, certainly. But I' have overcome my need to be aware of the response in the same way that I was with the first one,
0: <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of authors when the book comes out they they do worry about readers liking it. I feel like that's a pretty common worry, and it's also it's so frustrating because it's not there's not anything you can do about it
1: and it it can be frustrating, especially when when I see reviews that that just clearly wanted the book to be something it isn't
0: mhm yeah,
1: L- like y a If you open this book thinking it's a YA book, you're going to be disappointed because it's an adult fantasy novel. It's structured differently. It focuses on a lot of different viewpoints. So if you're expecting one thing and it's not that, I can see where that's a frustrating reading experience. But I also, you know, where my defensiveness comes in is, but that's not the book's fault. Yes. It's made me much more generous, though, in how I read and review other fiction. Oh, yeah. I've gotten much better at going, you know, this book didn't work for me, but that's not necessarily the book's fault. Who is it mm-hmm. for? Who is its ideal reader? And does it work for them? It's it's maybe nicer on <laughs> things like that, I think.
0: Yeah, I've gotten several reviews that say, oh, these characters sounded like teenagers. And I write YA, so I'm
1: like, <laughs> thank <"Good>? you. <laughs> like, that's the point. Yes. <laughs> the one i got like that was she didn't even try to hide that this was inspired by ancient rome and i'm like (laughs) you're right i i sure didn't that was my log line that was my marketing like i you're correct that's a selling point (laughs) (laughs) feature not a bug (laughs) exactly exactly All
0: right. So it is time for the third cue, which is the most fun cue out of all of them. Do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that is kind of interesting or fun or unique?
1: I have a a slightly odd superstition, I Mm. think. I have a couple of necklaces that I wear when I'm drafting. And it's not an absolutely everyday thing and, you know, not every single time I sit down to write a few words. But when I really want to focus, I have these two charm necklaces really they're one of them's labradorite and the other one is um celestite that you know they're supposed to be good gemstones good good crystals for writers mm. and i only sort of half buy into to the mystical nature of that but it's become a habit it's become my own little like i put this necklace on and it's focusing time yeah sort of thing <laughs> it's it's a weird little thing but and so they the rest of the time they live on my desk, on top of my tarot cards, to sort of like charge up their energy in a way. Nice. They also taunt me because if I if I if I sit there looking at them and realize I haven't put them on in a couple of days, it's like mm, <laughs> you haven't been buckling down. You haven't been focusing. So, so they judge you a little bit too. <laughs> they do a little bit. They
0: do. Yeah, I've definitely heard of um a couple people people have. I don't know what you call them, like almost like good luck charms or or just points of focus like physical objects that even if you don't believe in kind of like the more mystical like supernatural side of it they're just a point of focus you know
1: i am a pagan i do believe in some woo woo things Mm -hmm. but i'm also very practical i'm a very practical witch and so where the power comes into it is okay but if it's having the psychological effect on me then it's working yes exactly whether or not the stone itself has any power if it helps my process, then it's doing what it's supposed to do. And that means it works. Mm -hmm. When you were kind of in the lowest parts of your writing journey, what was that like?
0: And what kept you going?
1: What it was like for me, and this comes out of a history of anxiety and depression. It alternates between really grayed out feelings about the world, like those feelings of Nothing matters, nothing I do matters, nothing in the story matters, nothing in the entire universe matters. Mm. It's all just a big gray blanket dropped over everything. Alternating sometimes with moments of intense white hot frustration <laughs> with the things that are outside of my control. What kept me going and what continues to keep me going is honestly just sheer cussedness, <laughs> just refusing to let any of the things that happen be the thing that defeats me. Mm. It's like, no, I'm not stopping. You can't make me. (laughs) (laughs) Just being stubborn. Mm -hmm. That's what gets me through. Is is just an an inner little goblin of tenaciousness that (laughs) that (laughs) rises up to help me get through the really tough moments.
0: Nice.
1: Do you want to share with
0: listeners what are some of the biggest mistakes that you felt like you made along the way in your journey to publication?
1: I entered without a strong sense of how the business part of it worked. I didn't know quite what to expect when it came to how long things were going to take, for one thing, what the whole marketing process was going to look like, Mm. how many different people have their hands and how many different parts of the process. And so I sometimes felt lost. I worried frequently that I wasn't doing what was expected of me because I felt like no one had told me what was expected of me. I Mm. I sort of wish that I had educated myself a little better about those parts of the business leading up to publication. Uh, Post-publication, the biggest mistake I made was reading reviews. (laughs) Just don't. Just don't. Future (laughs) authors out there. Everyone told me to, and I didn't listen, and I wish I had. That is
0: a big thing. I feel like we talk about not reading reviews a lot, and almost every author is like, no, it's fine. I can handle it. (laughs) i mean some people really can
1: but most people (laughs) can't i'm absolutely not one of them no (laughs) i want to hear only the good things and yeah because like at a certain point it's the phrase that gets passed around is reviews are for readers Mm -hmm. because a reader who critiques my book well i can't change it now that's not something i can fix that's not something i can go in and Mm -hmm. change and then when it came to writing the next book I got so in my head and I was trying to avoid anything that anyone thought was wrong with the first book. And I was trying to make everyone happy who had liked anything about the first mm-hmm. book. It's like, well, that's impossible because some of those things are contradictory. One person's favorite character is something that somebody else thought didn't need to exist. Exactly. So it's like, I can't reconcile. I can't fit those things together. But I was trying to. And that was not good. That was not healthy for me. <laughs> that was not a good place to be.
0: I remember even querying, I got a response, two different responses on one day from a query letter. And one was, I love the voice, but I couldn't really follow the plot. And then the second one was, I loved the plot, but I couldn't stand the voice. And I was like, what am I supposed to do with this?
1: <laughs> I had almost exactly the same thing happen. It was it was ones that said, I love the concept, but I couldn't get into the writing. And the other one said... I love your writing. I think it's great, but the concept isn't doing it for me. And I'm like, what? I don't, I don't, and that's not useful. What do I do with it? I I was very lucky that it
0: happened on the same day too, because then I could, I could look at that and really, cause you see, you hear, you know, it's subjective and everyone has their own opinion, but seeing those on the same day really helped it like solidify in my mind that people are just going to have different opinions and that's fine. Yeah. It's totally subjective. Not every book is
1: for everyone, and that's fine.
0: Though I do wish, as to your first point, that publishers would do a little bit better, or even agents, I don't know wh- whose responsibility it would be, do a little bit better job of preparing authors for some of those things. Like, I teach a class on press yeah. kits, and every time I offer it, it's it's people who are already published who are coming to get that information, When really, I wish you had had that information six months before you were published, you know? And so I don't don't know what the solution is there, but I'll just keep teaching my class until there is one.
1: And I think that's great. I I do. I wish there was like a primer for new authors Mm -hmm. that could be handed out. Like, here are all the things you're going to need to know about. But there sort of can't be because the experience is going to be so different. Yeah, definitely. Different publishing houses. And it's just, it's tough it's tough and there are so many things in the industry that do still sort of happen behind a curtain a little bit and authors worry about lifting it about about what if i say something what if i i Mm -hmm. get somebody mad at me because i reveal something Mm
0: -hmm.
1: it's tough it's it's hard to know on either side of that curtain what the appropriate behavior is sometimes yeah
0: Can you share um, what are the most important lessons you learned on your journey
1: into publication that listeners might find some value in? Absolutely. From a craft perspective, the biggest things I learned all had to do with pacing. Left to my own devices, I would write stories with very interesting characters who wander into each other and have conversations for a few hundred pages. (laughs) The exciting incidents were not happening with enough frequency or at the points in the manuscript where they needed to happen. So lots of those rounds of revisions I went through was fixing that, was was putting something exciting at the right point in the beginning, you know, when we've just gotten to know the characters just a little bit, and then bam, something exciting has to happen, as opposed to spending longer just introducing who they are. There's some great resources out there, but once again, this is something I learned a lot about from Twitter, from some fantastic authors who do threads on this sort of thing. There, There's just so many out there that have wonderful resources. Right now, Susan Dennard is doing a series on, you know, how she makes a book Mm -hmm. and her newsletter, which is fantastic. Melissa Caruso does a lot of great craft threads and seeing how other authors do it helps me think about my own process. It's given me some good tips and tricks. There's no one right way, of course, right? There's no one right answer to how to pace a novel. But having all of these viewpoints and all of these different methods has helped me refine my process. And I think I'm getting better at it. And hopefully I hopefully I keep getting better at it. I, I never want to stop learning about mm-hmm. things. From a mindset perspective of of like important lessons, I think that big idea of like, not every book's going to be for everyone and that's fine is the big thing to, to set yourself on. But at the same time, remembering that, at least when it comes to like the querying stage, it only takes one yes. Mm-hmm. One yes gets you in The door and to the next step. So, not being discouraged by the nose. If they have something useful for you in them, you know, if you get some feedback, take it, incorporate it if it's good. But just keeping in mind that's that subjectivity, that it only takes one yes to get where you need to go. Mm-hmm.
0: I just recorded an episode with Rebecca Enzor, which may come out before or after years. I'm not sure on the schedule yet. And she said, that story structure was was one of the most important things that she learned craft-wise. And um, she had written a couple books and then started learning about story structure. And the book that she wrote right after that is the, the first one that sold. As someone who's like very pragmatic, I feel like story structure was one of the first things I learned, but there were other things I definitely <laughs> needed to learn after that. All right, so this is not a business that most of us succeed in completely on our own. So this kind of like the acknowledgments portion of the podcast. <laughs> so who are some of the people who helped you along the way, and, and how did they help you?
1: I am fortunate to have an extremely supportive family. My parents, from the time I was eleven and said I wanted to do this, have had my back, have encouraged me. I have always been my biggest fans and my biggest cheerleaders, and that's still true. They don't understand why I'm not George R. Martin levels of famous yet. <laughs> <laughs> like, When's HBO going to call you? And I'm like, I don't know. I'd sure like them to. But your expectations may be slightly unrealistic, <laughs> mom and dad. But but they love me mm-hmm. and they're very supportive. My best friend, John Levinas, has been just an absolutely invaluable person through my entire life. But when it comes to my writing specifically, he is the person I bounce thaumaturgical ideas mm. off of. He's the person that I go to when I need to talk magic and how it works and and get ideas from him. And there are certainly fingerprints of his in this series, very much so. My agent Connor has stuck with me, uh, even when things were tough and and going through those rounds of submissions. And he and I have learned each other in some interesting ways. And and he has done a really good job figuring out how to manage my anxieties and how much information I want versus need sometimes, (laughs) which is magnificent. And then one of the best things I did, I think, was join a debut group in my release year. I was actually part of two groups. I I was part of Authors 18, which was a large debut group, different people who had adult fiction coming out in 2018. And that has been a absolutely magnificent network to have. Many of us are still active in the group. We still sort of have posts where it's like, okay, who needs help with something? Who needs something boosted? Who needs, you know, retweets and things like that? But it was so wonderful to have people going through the same things at the same time. And so the group was sort of the safe space where we could all come and vent about frustrations or talk out, you know, like, this is this seems weird, something my agent's doing. Is this normal? Or is this thing that my editor wants me to do? Is that okay? Can I push back? Would you guys push back? It was just, it was a great place to have those conversations. And then I also did something called uh, The Debutant Ball, which is a blog that each year it's uh five women who put together a whole year's worth of blogging and they became good friends and, and people I still rely on for things. Awesome. It's, it's important. It's so important to have writer friends. It's so, so, so important to have writer friends. Yeah. You need people you can talk to who are I think both at your stage and slightly ahead of you, but not so far ahead of you that it's intimidating. <laughs> just to talk to about all the weird bumpiness that, that happens mm-hmm. in this industry.
0: Real quick, just um, because you've said his first name a lot, can you just say who your
1: agent is? He's Connor Goldsmith of Fuse Literary. I follow him on Twitter. <laughs> He's excellent. Well, you read your query letter for
0: us, so we kind of know what the oven Cycle is about, but is there anything you want to add that readers might want to know about if they're
1: interested in checking it out? If you like ambitious people, using magic in some really interesting ways. This is a series for you. Uh, If you liked Game of Thrones, but wanted a writer to be nicer to women and more (laughs) empowering to women, this will be up your alley. The thing about that query letter that amazes me is that with as much as the book changed in revisions, the core of the story remained the same. There is very little about that query letter that would need adjusting to reflect the book as it is. In fact, we pulled chunks of it I think, for the uh, the jacket copy. Mm-hmm. Aula isn't as much of a focus. She she sort of drops to a secondary character, but still she's important. The geopolitical aspect doesn't get touched on as much because that got way beefed up in, in my first rounds of edits with Connor. So there's also a conflict going on in Iberia, which is Spain to Rome, with a different kind of magic there mm-hmm. and with a different set of characters who sort of didn't come into the query letter who I think are fascinating and one of whom I'm just, I'm so mean to her. I, I owe her a happy ending in some way because I've put her through so much.
0: Also, you have a podcast about world building. Can you tell us about that?
1: Absolutely. The podcast is World Building for Masochists. I am co-host with Marshall Ryan Maresca and Rowena Miller. We talk about all kinds of different aspects of fantasy world building from geology to geopolitics to cultural things to what a family unit looks like to you know what the animals in your culture are like to what the art is like all the little details that fill out and flesh out a world and make it seem like a place real people could live and we draw on a lot of history we draw on a lot of science we draw on other books that we love we get to bring in so many exciting guests it's kind of the best part about the podcast is tricking other writers into coming and talking to us <laughs> it's like yes come let us let us enjoy your brilliance for an hour we have so much fun it's it's a delight to get to talk both to my co-hosts and to all of our guests about this thing i love to do which is just making making worlds making making new places to go let my imagination live
0: that sounds so fun yeah i was on a panel and they it was about alternative media that authors do so like podcasts youtube that kind of thing And someone had asked, like, what is your favorite part about it? And it was that I have an excuse to contact these people that I probably wouldn't contact otherwise, these really cool publishing people, and have conversations with them. It's really just like an excuse to talk to fun people.
1: (laughs) It really is. It's it's a, a chance to have fun conversations with brilliant, brilliant people. And I've learned so much from that process, too, honestly. I came in one year into the project. Replacing Alexander Roland, who started the podcast um with Marshall and Rowena, but even in just this year, like I've gotten so many ideas. I know that the next project I work on is going to put a lot of them into action, mm. and that's been the case for my my co-host as well. Marshall's book that just came out, "The Velocity of Revolution," is built on the bones of the podcast. um It's built on the things we've talked about because it made him interrogate the work he was doing in a different way and start thinking about like. What we say on the show is choose, don't presume. Mm. When you're building your world, don't just assume a family unit is, you know, mom, dad, and a certain number of kids. Mm-hmm. What else could a family unit look like? That could be not just an option, but perhaps that's the norm, mm-hmm. you know, in in the world. And, and just making making every choice about world building purposeful and interesting.
0: Yeah, I, I can see how thinking deeply on these world building topics for each episode can really lead to improving your own craft in the area as well. That's really interesting.
1: Yeah. yeah, we think we think too a lot about how to then give that information to the reader and how much do you trust them to figure out versus how much do you have to sort of lead them to the craft based things. We talk about a lot of that too and it's just it's great. I love that I get to just spend time every couple of weeks thinking about that real hard for a while.
0: Well, that is everything today. Thank you, Cass, so much for coming on Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of Cass's query in the show notes, along with links to find out more about her and her book and her podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on your podcast app, tell your friends, or share this episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show with a couple of bucks a month, go to patreon.com slash live. That link is also in the show notes. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarah and click on the podcast logo on the sidebar. That is Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you for tuning in and we will see you next time. transcription is available at the bit.ly link in the show notes. Thank you to Jake Nichols for generously providing the transcript. If you're enjoying this show, please check out Pub Talk Live. Pub Talk Live is a publishing talk show broadcasting live to YouTube every second and fourth Saturday at 9 p.m. Eastern, but it is also syndicated as a podcast. Agent Chat Live is a spinoff of Pub Talk Live that features casual chats with literary agents with the intention of helping writers get to know the agents a little bit better. Check out both on YouTube or the podcast app of your preference.